Good morning once again. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 1 this morning. I want to begin this series with a quote that I found in a book in my library. It's by Galen Anderson. He said, A man's life is either the tumbleweed or the oak tree. Some people just grow like the weed. They are of no value in their youth. And as the years of life come, they break loose and become a blotch on society. They have no useful purpose. Just drifters. Their loved ones will mourn their loss, but society will not miss them. Then there are those whose lives are like the oak. They have turned from the frivolity of this life and have invested in things that have genuine worth. Their influence for good will live on in the lives of others after they are gone. Their death is noticed because their lives were spent bettering the nation and the community. They will be missed. That's a a good way to begin this series. I'm calling it Movers and Shakers. It talks about the lives of people who influenced the nation in the formative years when it was just budding into monarchy. The nation of Israel was established in the land. It was a low point in the nation after the period of the judges. And then three people came on the scene, a prophet, a politician, and a poet. The prophet was named Samuel. The politician, Saul. The poet who turned king was named King David. The key concept is influence in this series. These are people who influenced an entire nation. They all three had great starts. One had a very bad ending, but they all three had great starts. All three of them had flaws. We'll see them in the next few weeks. All three of them influenced a nation, and all three of them influenced each other as well. It seems that our influence is either negative or positive. It's never neutral. The footprints that we leave in people's lives are for the good or for the worse. And we're going to look at the lives of these people in the next few weeks. Maybe you can think of those in your lives that have influenced you. They've had a good impact on you, made a great impression on you. Perhaps it was a teacher or it was a grandparent or a parent or a good friend, somebody that you met that dramatically impacted your life. Could have even been a cartoon character. It's funny how we get impressions from many, many different sources. But the the issue we want to focus on is what kind of footprints are we leaving in our family? What kind of footprints are we leaving, impressions are we leaving in our church, in our community? You should also know that this is not just the story of three great men. There are women involved, and we're going to look at their lives as we go through this series on movers and shakers as well. In fact, The beginning of the story begins with a woman named Hannah. That's where we start this morning, and that's where the author begins with her life. You know, it seems that whenever God wants to do a great work, he gets hold of a man. And whenever God wants to do an exceptionally great work, he gets hold of a woman. I've seen that in so many instances where when there is a need that arises in the church, women first come to volunteer to help out. Look in the scripture at how many times that happened. The story of redemption in the book of Exodus begins with a godly woman named Jochebed, the mother of Moses, 
who had faith to drift her baby off in the river. And then there's another girl, Moses' sister, who watches as it goes and fills in another woman, Pharaoh's daughter. Three women begin the story of redemption. The story of the genealogy of Christ from King David begins with a woman, a Moabitess, named Ruth, who marries Boaz, who has Obed, and then Jesse, and then David. The story of miraculous preservation of the entire Jewish nation in the country of Persia is because of a woman named Hadassah. We know her by her Persian name better, Esther. The story of the Gospels begin with a woman named Mary, a woman of faith, trusting upon the Lord, the mother of Jesus. There's an old proverb that says, One generation plants the tree and another gets the shade. Samuel, the prophet, the first in the groupings known as the prophets, gets the shade from a wonderful woman by the name of Hannah, his mother. She provided the shade. She was the oak tree that Galen Anderson spoke about. In fact, the entire nation of Israel has a debt of gratitude to pay this woman. We're going to read her story this morning, or part of it. We're going to look at two things. She was a woman with a problem. She was a woman with priorities. Let's read the first eight verses, and the problem becomes quite clear. Now, there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. Now, that's a problem. It's not her problem. It is his problem. And we'll see that in a moment. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. That's her problem. It's a problem indeed. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? The woman, Hannah, was a woman with a problem. She was barren. She had no children. The burning desire of every Hebrew couple was to bear children so that their name could live on in Israel. And in their view back then, the more children, the better they were. The better they would be in their old age, the better they would be as their name would develop in the land. And so Psalm 127 says, Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. And happy is the one whose quiver is full of them. 
that was every mother's desire, every woman's desire, every, every man's desire to have children. This guy has two wives, which is against God's standard. God's original design in Genesis 2 is the one man, one woman relationship. And it was never God's design nor desire that polygamy ever be in place. In fact, every time it was in place, there was a problem. We can see it here, the rivalry. It was in ancient societies, however, permitted primarily for the perpetuity of the name of the tribe in Israel. So evidently, Elkanah married Hannah. No children developed, so he married Penina for the sake of having children. Childlessness was a terrible stigma. Most women believed it was a curse from God. It wasn't a curse from God. They believed it was. They took it very personally, very seriously. You may remember back when one of the wives of Jacob named Leah finally found out she was pregnant and she rejoices saying, the Lord has taken away my affliction. That's what they saw it as, an affliction, if you couldn't have children. And then when she became pregnant, the other wife of Jacob named Rachel grabs her husband and says, give me children or I'll die. A Jewish rabbi at that time said there were seven people that were excommunicated from God and the list began. A Jew who has no wife or a Jew who has a wife and who has no child. In some cases, childlessness was grounds for divorce. Now that's bad enough. Hannah had it worse. Not only was she barren, she had competition. Her name was Panina. She had to share the home with her and her children. And notice the end of verse 4. That Elkanah would give portions to Panina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. You get the impression that there's more than one? Like there's a whole bunch? Not only is Hannah childless, but she's in the same home with another wife that her husband shares who has lots of sons and daughters. Imagine preparing family meals, going out on outings, going to church, going to worship. In fact, the most painful period was no doubt this annual 15-mile trek from Ramathaim Zophim to Shiloh, where they would worship at the tabernacle. Because the family was to give an animal in sacrifice, a portion was used to burn on the altar, the rest of the animal given back to the family, they were commanded to eat it in the presence of the Lord with rejoicing. And everybody was rejoicing except Hannah. No joy was in her heart. She was broken. Look down at verse 6. Her rival provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was year by year. This went on for a long time. When she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Panina means pearl. What a gem she was. Panina the pest. Hannah means grace. It took a lot of it to put up with Panina. 
Every time they'd go to worship, this this rival would would make fun of her. Now look down in verse 9. So Hannah arose after they finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. That verse gives insight into the emotional makeup of many people, even today, who deal with infertility. In fact, just the very word infertility stings, as some people have to listen to it again. I did a little research this week and found that infertility affects 6.1 million people in the United States. I know that's just another statistic, but let's put it in perspective. 16 couples out of 100 in church face it. That means right now I'm talking to hundreds of people who have been affected by infertility, painfully. Now, you wouldn't think it's that high, especially if you go over to the nursery and see how many babies are there. There are tons of them. The problem is none of them belong to those couples. And they feel very unblessed, very isolated, very left out, very afflicted. It's a pain that they deal with for for years upon end sometimes. Why? Because somehow the ability to reproduce speaks to their completeness as a man or as a woman, their worth as an individual. That's not the case, we know, but that's how it feels. That's how it feels to them. Think of it. Girl grows up playing house. And as she plays house and imagines being a wife, she also imagines being a mother. And she takes the dolls and she imagines the time when she's going to have her own babies and what it would be like. And then that dream is shattered over and over again. Or the husband and wife, before they get married, they they talk about their relationship and they start planning. And the question comes up, well, how many children do you want? Do you want a boy or do you want a girl first? What would you name the child? And all of those plans are dashed once again. And so they go to doctors, they get prayer, get anointing with oil, whatever it takes, to no avail. And it's painful. It's painful every time that couple gets a baby announcement in the mail. One of their friends is pregnant or had a child. It's painful every time there's a baby dedication at church, and it's not them. It's painful every Mother's Day. And all of that to say, the rest of us need to learn to walk softly around such broken hearts, to deal tenderly because of those feelings. I want to tread, trying to follow my own advice, very carefully here. But there's something to notice that's even in our text, and that is childbearing is part of the sovereignty of God. I'll admit I don't understand it, but it is part of the sovereignty of God. The Lord closed her womb, it says. It says it twice. Later on, God will open up her womb. And that is a phrase that is used not just here, but often in the Scripture, that childbearing is part of the sovereignty of God. Now, I'll be quick also to say, I don't know why. Some people can have lots of kids and others can have none or one. I don't know why. There's over a million teenage pregnancies every year by those who don't want kids, while others who would desperately love to nurture them can't have any. 
It's an enigma. I'm puzzled by it. One woman had to come to grips with this, as many do. Her name was Cindy Lowen, and she wrote in an infertility journal these words, I have been prayed over. I've been anointed for healing on various occasions. But each time I've submitted to God in this area, my doctor has reported a poorer prognosis. Yes, in his own way, God was answering my earnest prayers. While my self-esteem had been bruised, I realize now that it does not rest upon my ability to reproduce. A lesson that she learned. Life does not always come in packages that we design, does it? You know, we kind of plan what it's going to look like when we're a certain age and what our life's going to be, but, you know, the, the house with the white picket fence doesn't always happen, does it? Not, not the way we plan. If you are unable to bear children, it does not mean you are cursed by God. It simply means that God perhaps wants to bless you in a different way. Let me give you a few suggestions. First, perhaps it's because God is preparing you for when you will have children. Just because you can't have them now doesn't necessarily mean you couldn't have them in the future. Maybe you're not ready. Some people get pregnant after a few months. Some, it takes 17 years. Another suggestion, perhaps the Lord is preparing you for foster parenting or adoptive parenting. You know, there are multitudes of children out there without any caretakers whatsoever. There are more children who would love to have parents than there are adults who want to be parents. And there are 100,000 frozen embryos in cryobanks across this country right now, waiting. A third possibility is that God might want you available in some way that childbirth would make it impossible otherwise. And so God has reserved you for something special, a different kind of a blessing. Now, Let me switch gears and give a a little note to those who are already parents. You're already married. You're already parents. You're building your family. I want you to notice what Hannah wanted more than anything else. She wanted a family. This gal was willing to identify herself, her life, her being with being a member of a family and raising a child. Hannah wanted what many people today are willing to walk away from. She didn't see children as a financial burden, as a terrible responsibility, but as a wonderful blessing from God. This year, six million people in our country are going to be parents. Their lives are going to radically change. I wonder how many of them are going to see that that child is a gift from God. A lot of them won't. A lot of them will walk away from their family. Hannah wanted it more than anything. All all of that to, to simply bring up this point. Our nation needs more Hannahs. Gals who will say, this is important. This is not some little tiny job of being a mother, having a family. That is so demeaning compared to something else. And our nation needs more Elkanahs who would go after their wives and bring encouragement and support. I was reading about a 
two people in England, a young couple. He was a factory worker in a British factory. After years of marriage, the announcement came she was pregnant. They were so excited. And so um, they went over and the man told the co-workers that he worked with, Hey, God answered our prayers. We're going to have a baby. It's a gift from God. I'm so glad. And of course, the, the factory workers didn't, didn't believe in God necessarily. And they, they mocked him. Oh, really? You prayed and God answered your prayer. You have a gift from God. Well, to, to make it worse, when the child was delivered, it was diagnosed with Down syndrome. And so the man thought, as, as difficult as this is, and she was devastated and he was devastated, how am I going to tell this to my coworkers? Well, he went to work. They had already found out, and they were looking at him, and he was very nervous, and they said, So, this child was a gift from God. You prayed for it. God answered your prayer. You're still glad. It was a long pause and a quick prayer for wisdom. And the man said, You know what? I'm glad that God gave me the child and not you. And I applaud his remark because this world needs more children that Christian devoted parents can produce. In a world that's going away from God, to have children that are loved by godly parents and put into this society can be a great asset. Well, that was Hannah's problem that presents itself at first. Something else, and this is the second part of this message, she's a woman with priorities. There's two snapshots of Hannah that that reveal her portrait. She's a woman of great value. There's more than two, by the way. There's three or four, but I need something to preach on next week, so we're going to stop with two this morning. First of all, she was a woman rightly related to God. Story opens up. What are they doing? They're going to church. They're walking 15 miles to Shiloh, and she's part of it. She's devoted to this regular attendance for the Feast of Tabernacles in Shiloh. Not only that, but when she's down and out, what does she do? What's her first instinct? I'm going to talk to God about this. I'm going to pray about this. And she goes and she prays. Look at verse uh, 10 once again. Look in verse 11. We read 10. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli watched her mouth. And Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli, this is the high priest, thought she was drunk. And Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put away your wine from you. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. This deep, spontaneous expression of grief, she prayed. By the way, isn't that a great description of prayer? Pour out your soul before the Lord. And sometimes people will say, yeah, but I don't know how to pray. You know how to talk? You know how to express grief? Do you know how to complain? Now, everybody I've ever met knows how to complain. And even David said, I'll pour out my complaint before the Lord. 
He said in Psalm 55, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. The deep hurts, the pain, the things you wrestle with, as well as the joys, pour out your soul before the Lord. What's great about this prayer is that it shows a secret to effective prayer. Effective prayer is when we align ourselves with what God wants. Not what we want, but the purposes of God. The purposes of God. In 1 John, it says, If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know He hears us, we know that we have what we've asked of Him. It says that God shut her womb. That drove her to prayer. God, give me a male child. You give me a male child, he's yours. That's exactly what God wanted, to raise up a prophet. The nation was at a low point. It needed a spokesman. It needed a Samuel. Somebody devoted from youth to the work of God. And so she aligns herself with the purposes of God, prays for it, and God does it. What's the point? The point is this. Prayer is not a good sales job. It's not talking God into something. It's not like God just kind of folds his arms and waits till you really give him a good spiel and, well, I'm going to fast a little longer and God will really know I'm serious. Effective prayer is reached when you align yourself with the purposes of God and God is looking for somebody to bless who's aligned with his purposes. First Chronicles says, The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth that he might strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And so she prayed in alignment with the purpose of God. Not only did she pray, but skip ahead to chapter 2. A couple verses. Hannah prayed and said, now she writes her own worship song. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord. There is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Listen, that's a whole lot deeper than now I lay me down to sleep. She had a depth of relationship. It was real. It was authentic. She was in right relationship to her God. And she's going to be Samuel's mother. You know what? Samuel had a great heritage, didn't he? A praying mother. You know, a praying mother will do more good than all the congressmen and senators put together. Abraham Lincoln said, No one is poor who has a godly mother. Theodore Roosevelt wrote, The mother is the one supreme asset of national life. She is more important by far than the successful statesman, businessman, artist, or scientist. Amen to that. A godly mom, rightly related to God, Gals, if you are going to be all that God called you to be as a woman, as a wife, as a mother, if that comes, you need his strength. You need to be rightly related to your God to reach maximum potential. The second priority is she was a woman rightly related to her husband. These two things, to God and to her spouse. Notice in the first couple verses that her husband's name is Elkanah. His name means God has created. Classic name. Perfect. God created Elkanah just for Hannah, I believe. They had a good marriage. They had a good relationship going. And when I look back on my own relationship and how it started and how we fumbled, but we finally did the engagement and got married, 
I have to say wholeheartedly that Lenny is made perfectly for me. We're meant for each other. Now, I tried out other models before I married Lenny. And I look back now and say, God, thank you for your deliverance. Thank you that I didn't make that mistake. Thank you that this one that you made me for is with me. Verse 5 shows us a little bit of that relationship. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. Did you get that? Her worth to him was not based upon her ability to produce children. Lord, close your room, but I love you. I love you for who you are. Verse 8, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now, he could have said, What's up with you? Crying at the table. Hey, deal with it, okay? Check. It's the way it is. Now, he went after her and tenderly spoke to her. Tenderly spoke to her, as if to understand and as if to comfort. Happy is the marriage where a man and a woman understand each other, where they love each other, and where they do everything they can to build up, not tear down, their love. Somebody once said, marriage is like a long trip in a tiny rowboat. If one passenger starts to rock the boat, the other has to steady it, or both will go to the bottom together. Ever heard the saying, love is blind? Well, marriage is the eye opener. (laughs) And if you think you're going to live in this perpetuity of emotional highs that you have when you're infatuated throughout the rest of your life, you are mistaken. It goes much deeper than that. It goes to a level of real love and real commitment beyond any infatuation. And in the marriage with eyes wide open, then love comes in and pours itself on all the flaws and all of the discouragement and all of the stuff that comes along with the relationship. And you know what? That is the greatest gift parents can give to their children is that they love God and they love each other. Dads, one of the greatest things you can do for your son or daughter is to love your son or daughter's mom. And moms, one of the greatest gifts you can give to your children is to love God and love that child's father. Bring stability. Bring stability to a child. My son is cute. He'll often, he, he loves to see us give each other attention. When my wife and I are together and I'll pat her or I'll hug her or I'll give her a kiss, he starts kind of getting closer, looking, and he goes, Dad, Kiss mom, I want to watch. He loves it. In fact, he'll say things, can you believe it, they've been married this long and they still kiss. <laughs> Parents, you know this. Children have a very fine set of invisible antennas, don't they? I mean, they can pick up on stuff. You might say, well, the kids don't know. I bet they do. It's like, They can sense apathy. They can sense strife. They can sense forgiveness. They can sense love. And if you have the pillar of a right relationship with God and a right relationship with your spouse, you can weather any storm, guaranteed. Now, just a note to those who are contemplating having children. 
Maybe you're at a point where you think, yeah, it's about time. We're thinking about having kids now in the future and right, waiting for the right time. Maybe this is it. Use these two pillars as your guides. Rightly related to God, Christ is the center of your home, and you love one another based upon that commitment. I'll tell you why I say that, because there's lots of people who think they're going to have kids, and they do have kids for all of the wrong reasons. Let me give you a few of the wrong reasons. They say, well, you know, we're not doing so well, and we figure if we have a child, it will save our struggling marriage. Wrong answer. Wrong motivation. It will complicate your struggling marriage. It will add another struggle or point of struggle to your already struggling relationship. Or a couple might say something like, yeah, we're going to have kids pretty soon because our parents keep bugging us. They want to be grandparents so bad, they want us to produce a grandchild. Wrong answer. Parents, leave your children alone who are having kids. Let it be on their time, their agenda. Or, well, I feel so unloved in this relationship. If I had a child, at least I know my own child would love me. Wrong answer. Wrong motivation. Make sure God is the center of your home. It should be God-centered and it should be marriage-centered. Too many homes are child-centered. It happens without many couples even knowing it. Uh, the, the shift goes off from the relationship with God and the relationship we have with each other as husband and wife, and the child comes into the home and sets the agenda. Everything revolves around the child's interests, the child's activities, the child's relationships. And so there's a disintegration horizontally between husband and wife. Their only common ground is that child, not each other. You need to have two orbits firmly set, the orbit that you have with God the orbit that you have with your spouse, because if you don't, that child will come in and set its own orbit very quickly. And that's why many marriages disintegrate after the couple's been married for many years and the children leave the nest. They look at each other, the children are gone, and they go, and who are you exactly? I don't know you. Our common interest, our child is gone. We haven't built this relationship with each other. It's disintegrated. So it needs to be God-centered. It needs to be marriage-centered. And it's a great, great legacy to pass on to children. Well, that's Hannah. At least that's the first part of the story. A woman whose claim to fame is she was infertile. She prayed. God opened her womb. She became a prophet's mom. My hat goes off to mothers. I know it's not Mother's Day, but it still goes off every day to moms because you got a tough job. you got to put up with us, men. You raise our children with such devotion. And especially to those single mothers, I pray for you every time I see one. Such a hard job to balance life out with raising children. And, and men need to stand up and applaud the hard work that you do. In fact, men, treat your women well. Treat those wives well. Go after them like Elkanah did to Hannah. Let that woman know you love her more than any woman on the face of the earth. If you don't, she'll be insecure. Let her know. Well, no, not, not let her know. Be better to her than ten sons. 
That relationship needs to be intact. Well, I've been pretty candid. Can I get a little more frank as I close? Thank you. (laughs) Some of us men need to grow up. Some of us men have entered into a relationship with our wives and then with children with a very selfish attitude. I have my life, my independence. Listen, when you have three orbits going, you and God, you and a wife, and you and children, that is, that'll take up all your time. That's time-consuming enough. That is a selfless endeavor, not selfish. You cannot do those well being selfish. It takes surrender and abandonment and saying, like Elkanah did to his wife, hey, I'm better to you than ten sons, devoted to that relationship. How many of you have used a computer? Raise your hands. You've touched a computer. You've actually used one. Okay. Then you'll appreciate this closing illustration of a marriage problem. It's written in computer language. Some of you have seen it. It's a message to tech support systems. Here it is. Last year, I upgraded girlfriend 1.0 to wife 1.0 and noticed that the new program began unexpected child processing that took up lots of space and valuable resources. No mention of this phenomenon was included in the product brochure. In addition, Wife 1.0 installs itself into all other programs and launches during system initialization where it monitors all other system activity. Applications such as Poker Night 10.3 and Beer Bass 2.5 no longer run, (laughs) crashing the system whenever selected. I cannot seem to purge Wife 1.0 from my system. I am thinking about going back to Girlfriend 1.0, but uninstall does not work on this program. Can you help me? The response from tech support. Dear customer, This is a very common problem men complain about, but it's mostly due to a primary misconception. Many people upgrade from girlfriend 1.0 to wife 1.0 with the idea that wife 1.0 is merely a utilities and entertainment program. No, wife 1.0 is an operating system. Warning, do not try to uninstall, delete, or purge the program from the system once installed. Trying to uninstall Wife 1.0 can be disastrous. Doing so may destroy your hard drive and your floppy drive. (laughs) Trying to uninstall or remove Wife 1.0 will destroy valuable system resources. You cannot go back to Girlfriend 1.0 because Wife 1.0 is not designed to do this. Some have tried to install Girlfriend 2.0 or Wife 2.0, but end up with more problems than the original system. Look in your manual under Warnings, Alimony, Slash, Child Support. (laughs) Others have tried to run Girlfriend 1.0 in the background while Wife 1.0 is running. Eventually, Wife 1.0 detects Girlfriend 1.0, and a system conflict occurs This can lead to a non-recoverable systems crash. Some users have tried to download similar products such as Fling and One Night Stand. Often their systems have become infected with a virus. (laughs) 
I recommend you keep Wife 1.0 and deal with the situation. Having Wife 1.0 installed myself, I might also suggest you read the entire section regarding general protection faults, GPFs. You must assume all responsibility for faults and problems that might occur. The best course of action is to push the apologize button, then the reset button as soon as lockup occurs. System will run smooth as long as you do. Wife 1.0 is a great program, but suggestions for improved operation of Wife 1.0 are these. One, monthly utilities such as TLC and FTD. Flowers, right? (laughs) Two, frequently used communicator 5.0. Signed, tech support. Be the tree, be the oak that provides shade to the next generation. Father, we pray that you'd help us do that. A nation is as strong or as weak as families within the nation are strong or weak. Lord, I pray that we would be among some who would fight the national averages. That whatever problems we may face, the priorities would be a right relationship with our God, passionately devoted, demonstrated by consistency in our worship activity, depth of prayer life and praise, and then, Lord, that other strong pillar, that strong orbit of being rightly devoted to our spouses. Not only will we be able to weather every storm that comes our way, we'll be able to provide shade and security to the next generation that is wondering if there will ever be someone to give them direction. Lord, I pray that we would become people of influence, movers and shakers in communities and in a nation. But it begins by that that shaking at this first level of family where we fulfill our roles and demonstrate our love and ask for forgiveness and seek reconciliation. Bring that to us, to our church, to our community, to our nation. In Jesus' name, amen.